wellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. Welcome to Backchat, exploring the five pillars of health with Dr. Paul Bergamo and Dr. Anthony Coxon. Welcome to Backchat. My name is Paul Bergamo and it's great to be here in our next podcast. Backchat is about being your best. It does this by exploring the five pillars of health. It refers to being your best in thinking, moving, eating, sleeping, and also in neurology. Today's Backchat will cover the pillar of your neurology. Tell me as always, it's a great pleasure to introduce my fellow carpeting co-host, Anthony Coxon. Hey, Anthony, how are you going? G'day there, Paul. Uh, it's a different experience today for us. It's a, a back chat like no other, I would say. Well, I, I look to my left, I look to my right, and I, we're, we're at the uh, headquarters radio ring, uh, studios here at Ringwood, and you're not here. So what's happening? No, no, no. I'm remote this time. I, I'm in there. In, as much as I do like your home office, uh, Paul, I think I've got a much better view where I am. And the, uh, I'm at the Epworth Consulting Rooms on the seventh floor. Looking out on the beautiful uh, city of Melbourne, and wouldn't you know, it's just a magic Melbourne day, like it always is in Melbourne, of course. That's right. For those critics of Melbourne, it is always a beautiful day in Melbourne. So, uh, at Epworth Hospital, so what's, what are we talking about today, Anthony? Well, today, um, I, I guess as chiropractors, we, we see obviously a lot of uh, spinal-related conditions, and um, we're fortunate in that we can uh, help uh, a great majority of people, but uh, sometimes we need to go up the chain in terms of referrals. And I'm speaking with an expert in that today. So without further ado, let me introduce Dr. David Delahar. David is the only orthopedic surgeon in Australia who's also a qualified chiropractor. In 1980, David graduated from RMIT in chiropractic. He graduated with science in honours in 1985 and a medical degree with honours in 1989. He went on to be qualified for a fellowship at the Royal Australian College of Surgeons in 1999. And in 2000, he completed a Master of Surgery at the University of Melbourne. In 1999, he took a spinal fellowship at the Queen's Medical Centre in Nottingham, England. And David specialises in spinal surgery and currently operates, as he is with right now, Anthony, at Epworth Hospital in Richmond. Hi, David. How are you going? Uh, very good. Thank you very much. David, thank Excellent. you so much much for being a part of uh, Backchat and welcoming me into your uh, consulting room today. My pleasure. Um, as Paul uh, alluded to in the intro there, um, you're also a chiropractor, which is uh, an unusual thing for an orthopedic surgeon. Uh, my first degree, my first uh, official qualification was in chiropractic in the early days of the course RMIT. So how, tell us a little bit about, you, about your journey and uh, why you decided to be a chiropractor and after that why you decided to go down the, the medical route. Um, I actually started medicine straight from high school. I started when I was 17. I was probably fairly young at that stage to start a university course. And after a few years, I wasn't sure that that was exactly the course that I wanted to do and I wanted to experience a few different things. Uh, I had a friend who was doing the chiropractic course. I became quite interested in spinal conditions and spinal injuries. So I swapped over and completed the uh, chiropractic degree and then practiced only for uh, two or three years before I felt I should go back to Melbourne Uni and uh, then did a science degree out of interest, uh, majoring in the neurosciences, again, sort of brain and, and spine and peripheral nervous system. And then I thought, mm, before I get too old, I should go back and finish medicine because to be an intern is not a young man's uh, no. job. So I went back and finished medicine and fell in love with the science and art of surgery and decided I would pursue that. And the most natural 
evolution for me was to go into orthopedic surgery and then into spinal surgery with a smattering of uh, research such as the master's degree in there as well. David, off, off uh, air, you described the fact that you get up very early in the morning. Can you just give us a bit of a running picture of your day-to-day activities? Well, uh, typical day? Yeah, a typical day these days is not like it was 20 years ago when uh, I think I was averaging close to 100 hours a week working. Uh, I'm getting too old for that caper now. Uh, <laughs> so we, we still get up well before 6. I try to get to the hospital before 7. If we're operating, we start at 8. If we're consulting, we start at 8.30. And I usually try and get home by early evening these days rather than working late into the night. We still do a fair bit of work on the weekends to keep up with uh, the demand. I still operate on Saturdays, but a few years ago I gave up operating on Sundays when I gave up doing a lot of the major trauma work. Uh, well, that's all done. Just follow on, guys, your balance between consulting and timing surgery for the, for the usual week? Uh, you, it's about 50-50. So half the time we'd be consulting or doing ward rounds or you know, perhaps teaching medical students and half the other time would be in the operating theatre. Terrific. It's certainly a, a massive workload and it's a different, uh, I guess, level that you're dealing with in terms of patients as chiropractors. Um, Paul and I are obviously primary contact practitioners. We might follow someone through a, a course of care over weeks or even even months. What's the typical experience that someone has when they consult with you? Um, the majority of people, uh, patients that I would consult with don't end up having surgery. We normally uh, either organise for them to go back to their uh, primary um, conservative uh, management either with their chiro, physio or osteopath from wherever they come or yep. I try and organise some of that for them. So only uh, 10 or 20% I would say of the new patients that I would see end up um, requiring and, and having surgery. So Paul, that, that's a really interesting and I think very important uh, point for our back chat listeners because a lot of people I know in my experience when uh, the recommendation is let's get an opinion from uh, an orthopaedic surgeon, the thought is, oh my goodness, that means surgery is fait accompli, but it's good to know that that's not the case. It's excellent. Remember when we interviewed uh, Sasha as a, as a, a orthopedic surgeon with regards to feet, and he uh, correlated a very similar sort of outcome, did not we? So we, we certainly um, removed that myth, didn't we? Absolutely. So, and in fact, David said earlier in our conversations that, you know, the, it's a the goal of surgery is, the, or the, the or surgery comes into play only as a last resort. Or isn't that right, David? There's an axiom as medical students that we're taught is that surgery is for failed medical treatment. What that means is for failed conservative treatment. Uh, then um, we would consider surgery. However, I think it's important to uh, realise that just because you've failed conservative management doesn't mean that surgery is going to be the answer for you. In other words, operations don't fix everything. David, we just pursue that sort of line of inquiry and, you know, in our offices, I suppose, we're trying to keep your book slightly less busy by being successful with our conservative management, but Anthony and I and chiropractors and all our conservative practices know there are certain cases that go beyond our, our scope of practice. When, when should a chiropractor think of referring to a surgeon? What are sort of those red flags that, uh, that, that uh, align us to say, okay, we've done enough now, we need to get an opinion from someone like uh, Dr. David Delahunt? I think one of the most important things to be aware of is ongoing or progressive neurology or neurological deficit. This means more than just ongoing sciatic pain. It could mean evidence of cord compression, uh, in other words, myelopathy, or deteriorating motor function in the limbs, meaning that 
nerves are dying and there's a risk of permanent loss of function of uh, limb or bowel and bladder function. I think these are the, the absolute red flags, apart from uh, the concerns uh, regarding uh, spinal cancers, spinal infections, of course, those sorts of things, or um, uh, perhaps an unstable uh, traumatic event, a fracture or dislocation. If I just ask just one question, in regards to sort of time period of conservative management disperspective, are there sort of any red flag guidelines after 12 weeks or six weeks? I understand it's progressive nature, which may need it's got to be sooner, but is there sort of a figure there time-wise, conservative treatment-wise, that you think, okay, now it's time for us to have a look at it? For, say, a disc complaint? I think it's a sort of progressive motor weakness. If we're talking about disc prolapse, which is uh, what you were talking about, yep. um, you know, there's no harm in pursuing conservative management for six weeks to see if there's a natural um, improvement um, with time. And about 80% of sciaticas with, um, due to disc prolapses will show improvement over about six to eight weeks and go on to resolution. Unfortunately, 20% probably uh, do need some sort of intervention. So, so David, that's an interesting uh, point. Uh, if there's no progressive signs, uh, such as motor weakness, etc., and the patient is comfortable enough in themselves to manage the issue and continue on with a conservative program, are they worse off, better off for delaying surgery, or is it...? It's, it all sort of depends on how, how significant the pain and disability is for the patient. If patients say to me, uh, you know, I can still play 18 holes of golf and I take one Panadol on the day. I mm. say to them, well, what on earth do you want surgery for? You know, go yeah. away. If they say to me, I was playing 18 holes of golf and now I can't even walk to the car to get to the golf course and yeah. it's been six or eight weeks and the side is killing me, I say, well, maybe we should think about improving your quality of life. Mm. So on, on that, we've sort of mentioned uh, the, the disc injury thing. I would imagine that some sort of neurocompressive Disorder, whether it's a disc injury uh, or a um, uh, maybe an osteophytic uh, compression of some sort, they would be the more common things that you would see. As in the uh, private practice, yes. Um, when um, I did a lot of work in the public sector over the last twenty or thirty years, we obviously saw a lot more in the way of trauma or tumours. It's very interesting. In regards um, management. David, in the sense of common surgical techniques you use in practice? Um, well, the, I think the two most common things that we do as, as spine surgeons is, is one, the decompression, which is a word meaning basically clear the nerves and get the pressure off the nerve or the spinal cord, and two, the stabilisation or the fusion where indicated to lock one or more bones together to prevent instability or bones sliding apart, I suppose, is one way to look at it. Now, one of the things I know, a few of my patients have had um, discectomies. Uh, sorry, uh, not discectomies, a um, disc replacement, yes. uh, which is quite different, of course, to a discectomy. A discectomy, you're shaving off a, a, a section of a, of a bulging disc. Yes. A disc replacement, you're putting in something altogether different. Um, tell me about that. If you're talking about a uh, disc replacement being a, a, a mobile disc replacement, um, they came onto the market about 15 years ago and there was a flurry of excitement about them, uh, thinking that they were going to be the panacea for all back pain problems. Um, over the years, I've watched the enthusiasts become less enthused with this prosthetic device and um, there's uh, not 
anywhere near the same number of disc replacements being utilised these days. I believe the outcomes of that surgery have not been all what uh, people thought it was going to be 15 mm-hmm. years ago. And talking about the um, the ones that you do more commonly, uh, whether it's a discectomy or a, or a fusion, mm-hmm. when do you do one, when do you do the other? What are the indicators for this? Um, the uh, fusions are done in a situation where there is the potential for instability in the uh, lumbar spine. In other words, will you get a progressive slippage apart or spondylolisthesis? Uh, the fusions are done routinely in the cervical spine after the decompression because that's still the gold standard uh, as a what's called an anterior cervical discectomy infusion um, to lock the two segments together to prevent any further deterioration. So perhaps because, uh, just for our back chat listeners, can you explain what a spondylolisthesis is? Spondylolisthesis is a, a slippage forward of one vertebra uh, on top of another uh, and it's quite often a progressive condition uh, which can then cause other problems such as uh, nerve root compression or uh, further degeneration and further back pain, um, which can be then difficult to treat. So if I can simplify what you just said uh, just then, you've got the one group that where maybe uh, the disc is protruding out and causing some kind of pressure on either the spinal cord or the spinal nerves that exit the spine, and that job is basically to go in and shave that part of the disc. To decompress. So, so does that disc then, um, or that, that just heals, or do you have to sew up a section so more disc substance doesn't come out? You can't uh, actually sew um, the annulus or the outer layer of the disc. Uh, I tend to try and coagulate it a bit with an electrical device called a diathermy, which is a hot stick, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, there have been some devices um, on the market to try and stop more disc coming out, but they're still unproven. And although I have a model of one right here in my bookshelf, because I did the course, hmm. I've never uh, ever used one because I, uh, I have a degree of scepticism about new um, devices on the market that uh, come with a great deal of enthusiasm, which are still unproven. Right, and then so that's the discectomy side of things. The fusion side of things is this is when the when it's unstable, when there's a forward slippage, when the vertebrae aren't sort of stacking on top of one another correctly. Yes. Would it also be done, for example, things like it's some advanced degeneration, so it's not a disc protruding on the nerves, but more a bony protrudence onto the nerves? Yes, depending on how much bone you have to take away to uh, decompress the uh, soft structures, the neural structures, you may render that segment unstable uh, and um, provide the patient with a spondylolisthesis. So in that situation, it's better to uh, preempt any instability and do the fusion at the same time. Okay. So, David, I guess if we go and look at the two surgeries you perform most, the discectomy and the fusion, a patient would be fairly happy, I guess, if you're recommending a discectomy and that sounds like a far less complicated surgery. It's a, a much less of an insult to the body. It means uh, less surgical time, less recovery time, and greater return to uh, function than having a, a much larger fusion operation. And so just to summarise the, the, the two then, the, the discectomy is when the, the disc material or the discectomy surgery is, is recommended when the disc material is protruding out and it can be sort of easily shaved or, or cut off. Correct. And and you, what do you do? Do you sew that up afterwards, or what happens? Uh, you, you can't sew the outer layer of the of the disc or the annulus. Um, I tend to try and cauterize it with a, a thing called a diathermy, which is a hot electric stick, uh, to try and seal it. But the patient does have to be careful for uh, many weeks afterwards to 
and try and prevent recurrence of disc prolapse while the annulus is healing. Yes, right. And with the fusion then, this is for the more complicated, either an unstable condition where the vertebrae answers are sitting on one another in a stable way or perhaps when there's more um, of a, a bony degenerative uh, issue. Is that correct? Yes, that's, that's right. When it, um, taking away enough bone to do the decompression may render the vertebral segments unstable, um, creating problems in the future. It's better to prophylactically stabilise that level at the time of the surgery rather than create more problems down the track. And David, we've had a lot of patients talk about facet blocks. Where does that sit in regards to surgical procedures and your scope of practice? Do you do that and where is it used? I, I do my own facet joint blocks once a month uh, at the Epworth. They're predominantly done in older age patients with severe arthritic degenerative facet joints and um, the back pain, degenerative back pain that's not responding to um, hands-on therapy. Um, and we do it under a light uh, sedation because they can be painful if we're doing more than, say, two or four injections at a time. Uh, and I combine it using my old chiropractic skills with a bit of manipulation under the anaesthetic as well. And it helps some patients. Uh, other patients it's not so successful for. But over the last uh, 20 years, I, I have a number of patients who come once or twice or three times a year to have the injection procedures done because it's the only thing that gives them long-lasting relief. Two things I want to talk about. Uh, sorry, Paul. Two things I want to talk about there that you that I found very interesting. One, perhaps we should clarify just for the back chat listeners what a facet joint is. The facet joint is the small knuckle joint at the back of the spine. Um, you have the vertebral body and the vertebral disc up the front, which is the large segment uh, or the anterior section. And then the facet joints, uh, the little knuckle joints at the back, which allow and guide the movement between the two bones. And like any joint in the body, these joints can wear out with osteoarthritis. And the second question, and I've got a feeling, Paul, this is what you were going to ask, is um, manipulation under anaesthetic. Um, that's the, uh, that's I, I, I'm aware that this does happen, but that's as a chiropractor, that fascinates me. Tell me a little bit more about that. A lot of the elderly patients can't tolerate uh, having their spines manipulated uh, in the chiropractor's office. And so with them asleep under the light sedation, they can't feel anything. Their muscles are relaxed completely and I'm able to essentially um, open the facet joints up a little bit by doing the manipulation or gap the joints. And I feel that this allows more of the, the juice, the cortisone that we inject in to get into the centre of the joint. Right. So is that your main rationale for doing it, to try and get the cortisone into the joint? or it's, is it? It's part of it, but also to be able to uh, create some movement at that joint, which is what the chiropractor or osteopath or manipulative physiotherapist do with the patient awake. Indeed. But a lot of these patients can't, because they're too sore, can't tolerate that. That's fascinating. And how did you know you were going to be the minor in that question about handing your own manipulation and anesthetic question? You're, you're amazing. Well, as soon as I heard it, I knew we were both going to jump into that question. <laughs> Very good. Now, now, David, can when we're speaking about the benefits of surgery, when would you advise actually on the other side against surgery? What sort of indicators are there would you advise? Look, I think uh, obviously if there are other intercurrent severe medical problems which make the operation in general anaesthetic too, too risky, uh, I would often advise against uh, going down a surgical pathway for fear of doing harm to the patient medically. Um, I think some patients have some unrealistic expectations about surgery and predominantly these are 
both the young and elderly patients with non-specific low back pain and some degenerate discs, and they they sort of come thinking, oh well, if I just have a multi-level fusion, I'll be playing football again. Uh, you know, I, I think I, I have to try and make it very clear to these patients that um, the results of fusion surgery for axial back pain are, are not good, and they're not as great as doing an operation for neural compression or decompressive surgery. So if it's a discrete, and this has been my experience, I don't know about you, uh, Paul, but um, I've referred to orthopedic surgeons. David's seen a few of my patients before, and it's the ones that have the really very obvious disc prolapse, um, the ones that have the neurological signs in terms of loss of reflexes and uh, motor changes and sensory changes that are very consistent with a particular disc affecting a particular nerve. It's discrete, it's clear, it's absolutely there. It's not working under a chiropractic setting. They're the ones that I find tend to do really well in a surgical setting. Would that be the case? I I think that's certainly the case. If you've got clear-cut clinical signs, clear-cut MRI findings, a good, reliable patient with reasonable expectations of the surgery, then they're um, a good uh, a good option for surgery. Yeah, and anything almost in my experience of seeing people at the other end, anything that's not in that sort of uh, description, the results are mixed and often disappointing. Can be, yes. Yeah. So when how do people take when you say, look, you're not a candidate for spinal surgery? How do they typically take that? As, as I was saying, some of them are relieved that the, they're not undergoing uh, surgical intervention. Some of them are bitterly disappointed because they think they've come to me and the buck stops with me and they've tried everything else and they've got a condition and I point out to them that there is really no magic wand for this condition. They've come with their hearts usually set on having an operation to cure them, not realising that you know, surgery is not a cure-all. And, and with those, David, some of those perhaps come back a year later if you've said, no, you can't do it and persist, sort of their line of inquiry for help or, or not necessarily? Uh, some of them do. Uh, possibly more in the compensable situation. Uh, there are different sort of um, expectations, I think, uh, in the compensable uh, patients. Um, so, yes, I do often see compensable patients coming back year after year saying, can't you do anything? And I keep saying, no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but the, the, that, that's always coloured by the, the legal aspects of their claim. And one thing, just as a a little thing that we talked about earlier as well, is the crossover between an orthopedic surgeon and a neurosurgeon. When it comes to spinal surgery, I mean, clearly different if we're talking about, uh, uh, you know, matters that relate to the brain. But um, when it comes to spinal surgery, what's the difference between an orthopedic surgeon and a neurosurgeon? Well, in reality, there should be virtually no difference between the two. And although uh, the two surgeons have come through different colleges, if you like, um, the training should be pretty much identical and uh, it's always recommended after you finish your specialty that you do spend some extra time in what's called a fellowship, which is uh, higher training in just spinal surgery. So there, there shouldn't be much difference at all, really. Well, Paul Bagama, what do you think of that? Well, I'll tell you, I think it's been incredibly informative and... Uh you know, the podcast series continues to teach us a lot, Anthony, don't you think? Absolutely. Another another expert in a field that is very close to you and I, but just, you know, expanding the uh, the horizons and I think giving a lot of people um, information that's very important when they're considering, you know, which way to go with, uh, with seeing surgeons. 
Now, David, we, we like at this stage of the podcast to look into the back end, a bit of the brain of the uh, special of the person we're interviewing, and and if you could share with us a pivotal experience that's influenced perhaps your career or personal life, whatever you'd like to share with us uh, for our back chat listeners. I I think there's been a number of experiences on my way uh, through my career that have been influential or guided me in certain directions, but. The, the one case that sticks in my mind more than anything else, I think, uh, I was operating in China uh, 10 or 15 years ago with a small team from Melbourne University, and we were there at the time of the earthquake. And uh, I got the first patient sent to this teaching hospital who was paralysed from a lumbar spine fracture, and the professor there said, oh, well, he's your patient, you do what you think is best, you operate on him uh, with the whole team looking over my shoulder, all the Chinese trainees. It was quite stressful. Yeah. We operated and the following morning I went on the ward round at the hospital and the nurses had the patient standing by the side of the bed. It was just the most dramatic turnaround from uh, not being able to move his legs to being fully weight-bearing within uh, 12 hours. I think that's not the usual case by any yes. stretch of the imagination, but it is something that has stuck in my mind and I think the the uh, surgeons over there thought that I'd pulled some black magic, and I probably <laughs> did. David, was that a humanitarian uh, trip? Yes, yes. It was an exchange, little sort of an exchange of ideas um, uh, to go over there, see how they work, and to take some of our experience over there to, so they could see how uh, we worked and to sample some authentic Chinese food. <laughs> Very good, right? But, but, you, you deserve but, plenty of Chinese food after uh, a surgical procedure like that one, that's for sure. Um, so in summing up, uh, what are the three take-home messages you would give our Backchat listeners about uh, considering spinal surgery? Look, I, I think I'd probably say, as we've already touched on it, that surgery is um, usually the last resort. Um, surgery um, can't fix everything. And um, the patient still has to have, I think, realistic expectations of what they uh, are going to gain out of surgery. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, look, um, David, that's been a real pleasure sort of sitting next to you and Paul all the way over there in uh, in Ringwood. Um, uh, it's, I think uh, the take-home message for me certainly is, you know, for, for people out there who are undergoing care, stick with your chiropractor, physiotherapist or osteopath to see if you can get them through but there might be a solution, possibly, if uh, if that's not working for you. What did you think, Paul? Fantastic. Thank you, David, so much for sharing your wisdom. My pleasure. Excellent. Thank you for listening to Backchat. To stay abreast of updates on Backchat, please go to our Facebook page, www.facebook.com forward slash Backchat podcast. All relevant website links of today's podcast will be on our Backchat podcast Facebook page. If you like the show, please leave a five-star rating on iTunes. We leave you one thought. Be the best of what you do, and you will grow and inspire others around you. We look forward to catching up with you on our next Backchat podcast. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.